This is the case.report. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Case.Report. I'm Callum Swift and today I'm bringing you a very special episode all the way from sunny South Africa. But before we get our hands bloody, I want to introduce our first guest and provide a bit of context for where today's case is set. The registrar on the floor today is Dr. Wenuhu Hesu better known as Hesu, a Liberian doctor currently training in EM in South Africa. We first met when he was a student and I was working in Liberia. Since then, we've stayed great friends. It's really wonderful to be sat here with you in person, Hesu. Welcome to the Report. Ah, man, absolute pleasure, bro. Absolute pleasure catching up with you today. Can you tell us a little bit more about your life and training so far? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, like Callum mentioned, I'm from Liberia, a small country in West Africa along the coast. Beautiful, beautiful country, great surf. Um, so, born and raised in Liberia, um, training in Liberia, undergraduate, postgraduate, med school in Liberia as well. Worked a bit um, during the um, Ebola outbreak, devastating one that we had in 2014. Got exposed to emergency medicine. Also led um, the National COVID-19 unit um, as a clinical manager in our 2020 um, COVID outbreak as well in Liberia. So developed a keen interest in emergency medicine. Decided to move to Cape Town to train in emergency medicine with the hope of translating knowledge and skills that I've gained from here back home and help develop emergency care systems in Liberia. Super. Um, And I'm here because I was lucky enough to be granted an out-of-program experience time um, during my registrar training, um, and I was awarded a Global Health Fellowship through ICMT. Um, So I've been out here since January working in a busy emergency department in the Cape Flats, which has been an incredible experience. Today's case is set in one such ED. Um, So before the patient arrives, I just want to set the scene and talk through some of the unique challenges and opportunities that South African EM has. As far as the departments go, they're very similar in structure to most Irish EDs. Um, We have a majors, a minors, a peds, and a recess area. We have excellent consultant-led care. We have a broad mix of presentations, both trauma and non-trauma. And we see about the same kind of numbers as many Irish EDs, so around 140 patients a day. The main difference is the acuity of presentations, uh, the prevalence of HIV and TB, the volume of penetrating trauma, and in some instances, resource limitations. For example, uh, on a particularly busy Sunday shift recently, over the 14-hour shift, the department received six blunt assaults, five gunshot wounds, six car crash victims, nine stabbings, and 89 non-traumatic presentations. And that was all for our team of four doctors and an extra locum to handle. So as you can imagine with those numbers, it's not possible to receive each trauma with a full team um, or anything like it. In fact, the ED's docs own resus to such an extent that there is no ICU coverage, um, no anesthetic coverage, and the surgeons only get involved after the initial resus phase. Um, so with that in mind, uh, I just heard the resus alarm go off, and so we better run and see what's happening, Hasu. Sure. There's a young man that's been brought in by his friends in a wheelchair. He's covered in blood, and his friends tell you he's been shot. Over to you, Hasu. Okay, first, let's get him off the floor. Let's get him onto a monitored bed, preferably in recess. Um, I'll love some extra hands. Who's, who's free to help? The department is absolutely hopping, and there's a ventilator patient right next door in the bay next to you. But you have a recess nurse, um, a community service doctor, equivalent of an Irish SHO, and a German medical student uh, who's on elective with you. Sounds like a good team to me. Okay, so let's get him, um, let's get his clothes off. Let's get him on a monitored bed. Um, try and get two large bowl IVs in as quick as possible. Airway equipment to the bedside. Begin our ABCDE assessment. I'm looking for bullet holes. What do I see? You see a single bullet hole in the right axilla. Single bullet hole, right axilla. Um, any other holes? Any exit wounds? What looks like exit wounds? Not that you can see, no. Okay. Any other major external hemorrhage? Uh, Note, you've taken off the bloody clothes and put a sheet down and there's no catastrophic external hemorrhage. Okay. Airway? His airway is patent and protected. He's awake. Um, He's a little bit agitated, but he's protecting his airway. Okay. Agitated, but protecting his airway. That's good. Um, At this point, C-spine? You're not able to clear it clinically because he's uh, reduced GCS. He's agitated. I'm going to go ahead and immobilize the C-spine preemptively. Um, Breathing-wise, let's go on to breathing now. Um, Can I get some observations, please? What are the vital signs? What are the SATs? 
It's set to 85% on room air, coming up to 92% on a non-rebreather mask. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and listen to the chest now. Auscultation, what do I hear? Uh, decreased air entry on the right side. Decreased air entry on the right side. So this is a single gunshot wound, right axilla with decreased air entry on the right side. Now I'm going to go ahead and reach for my ultrasound, um, do a quick EFAS for this patient. Um, EFAS, what do we find? So there's no lung sliding on the right-hand side, um, but there's good lung sliding on the left. There's no pericardial effusion. Um, you see a right pleural effusion and there's no free fluid in the abdomen. So this sounds like this patient has a pneumothorax at this point in time or a hemopneumothorax given the mechanism of injury. Um, Circulation-wise, what do we have um, in terms of vital signs, please? Uh, so you've got a heart rate of 50, a blood pressure of 70 over 34, and on clinical exam, his hands are warm and his capillary refill time is two seconds. Okay, so there's a patient who single gunshot, right axilla, pneumothorax, and also in shock. I'm gonna go ahead now and ask my chef to put in the ICD on the right. Um, and I have my students to book a portable x-ray as quick as possible. Um, while you're putting up the IV lines, let's get some bloods, um, get a VBG, full blood count, um, UNE, and get a cross match. I'm going to go ahead and ask the sisters to give a gram of transdermal acid. We call that cyclocaprin in our setting. And go ahead and give some fluids um, so long. Uh, what fluids would you like to give? Um, I'll start off with warm, um, one liter of warm crystalloids. Okay. The ICD is in and 400 mils of blood has come out of it. Sat 400 simple. mils of blood out of the ICD. Yes. Sats is now up to? 100%. 100%. Okay, brilliant. So we got ICD in, we have 400 mils of blood draining our stat. I would like to at this point consider, you know, auto-transfusing this person. Um, injury just happened. We have 400 mils of blood in the ICD. We're going to go ahead and auto-transfuse him. Okay. Um, that's done. We're going to move ahead to disability. What's happening in terms of the GCS now? Um, so GCS is E4V4M6. He's awake and confused. Okay. Um, can he? Is he on command? Can he lift his legs? He obeys commands, but he says he can't move his legs. Can't move his leg. Can he feel his leg? Um, what is his reflexes doing? Uh, he can't feel his legs, and when you test the patellar reflexes bilaterally, they're absent. Okay. Um, I'm going to go ahead now and um, do a DDG rectal exam for him. What do I find on rectal exam? Uh, no anal tone. No anal tone. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and check his bobocavian reflex as well. So that's absent. Absent, okay. So there's obviously more to this case than a hemorrhagic shock um, as, we, as, as, as it's evolving. Um, how has he responded to fluid resus so far? Blood pressure is still 75 over 40, heart rate's 50. And, and my VBG, is it available? To, what's happening with the lactate? Yeah, so VBG's back, lactate's 2.5, HP's 15, pH is 7.35, and base excess is minus one. Okay, any more, any more flu, um, blood out of the dream? Nope, you put the new one on when you auto-transfuse, then nothing's come into it. Okay. Do I have any more data points? X-rays, have we got an X-rays done yet? Yeah, so portable chest X-ray have been. Um, the ICD is correctly cited. Uh, there's no pneumothoraces. Um, there's normal cardiac silhouettes. And the bullet is visible on the left side around the level of the clavicle. Okay. And um, on exposure, what is his temperature, please? 36 degrees. 36 degrees. Okay. So... This is a complicated one. Um, now, putting it all together, we have a patient with a penetrating um, right thoracic um, injury. We assume at this point it's transthoracic based on what we saw in the x-ray with a bradycardia, hypotension, and hypothermia. We haven't found evidence of significant blood loss, 400 mils out of the ICD. There's no cardiac tamponade on our EFAST. Um, I think at this point, my assessment will be that this patient is you know, in neurogenic shock. So at this point, um, let's start him on adrenaline. I'm going to ask the sister to mix up adrenaline infusion, and we're going to titrate to a map of above 85. Um, t um, temperatures are low. I'm going to get some bed hoggers on this patient immediately instead of urinary catheter. Um, and I'm going to move ahead and discuss with the tertiary um, trauma center for transport. This patient needs more definitive imaging. Trauma center has accepted the patient for transfer and um, transfer has been booked. Uh, would you like to intubate this patient for transfer? Intubate for transfer. That's, that's a very good question. I mean, I think there are a number of factors to consider here um, before I intubate. Intubation doesn't come without its own risk. So, um, you know, factors concerning his agitation, is his GCS declining? Um, we suspect that he has a neurogenic shock, which is, you know, injury to the spinal cord. So we'll be concerned for respiratory effort depending on the level of that injury. But at this point in time, there's no reason for me to suspect that, you know, his respirator seems fine, SAS seems fine. So probably the injury maybe is lower than... Um, is low enough that it doesn't affect um, respiration or the diaphragm. I also look at his PCO2 on the gas and um, level of suspected injury. At this point in time, given the information that I have, I don't think it's necessary to intubate this patient. But 
again keeping me resource very close monitoring if he deteriorates by any of these parameters i'm going to consider tubing him for transport super so ems are here now to take your patient to the tertiary trauma center for a ct scan and further management you check the result later in the night and they have a right pneumothorax the icd is correctly cited and the bullet has completely transected their t2 vertebra and ended up a few millimeters from the left subclavian artery no significant bleeding anywhere and the patient is stable um, they're on the neuro, uh, neurosurgery ICU. So, well done. Harry Case, eh? <laughs> yeah, well done. Really tough one to manage. An all too familiar presentation in the Cape Flax. It definitely took me a while to get used to the resus body dump and run. Uh, no pre-alert. Most of the sick penetrating trauma patients get brought in by their family or relatives um, or friends. Um, often there's no bed. They just get brought in, dragged in, wheeled in and arrive in your recess. So frantic first few seconds of cutting off their bloody clothes and, and looking for holes um, and looking for a pulse, seeing how sick they are um, and seeing how much uh, resources you're going to devote to them. Um, there's loads to unpack here. Um, so to start with, uh, just talk us through a little bit your initial priorities in the penetrating trauma patient. Like you mentioned, right? Finding that hole. Um, that can you know, give me kind of an idea of what injuries to predict, especially with penetrating injuries. And I want to rule out immediately life-threatening things, right? Like you said, we don't have a lot of resources. You don't have a full trauma team. Most of the time it's you and your comserve, you know, and one or two other persons or MO. So at this point is, does this patient have a tension pneumothorax, given that he has a you know, gunshot wound to the right, um, right chest? Is there a cardiac tamponade, which we can easily find on our EFAS? Um, is there massive hemorrhage? Get IV lines up, get this patient on a monitor. Those would be my priorities at this point in time. Absolutely. And I found uh, management of penetrating trauma very different to the management of blunt trauma, which we're more familiar to in Ireland with our um, motor vehicle accidents. In some respects, penetrating trauma is actually easier, um, at least to diagnose the, the extent of injury, because it's isolated to the area that is involved with the knife, uh, knife wound or the gunshot wound. Um, compared to blunt trauma where kind of anywhere in the body can be affected. Also, you know, the sheer volume of penetrating trauma in the Cape Flats means that they don't all get seen in recess. Um, you know, early vital signs and an EFAS done in triage are used to sort those that need recess level care from those that can wait um, in minors or majors. Um, yep, you did hear that right. Stab chests go to minors. Um, initially, that took me a while to get used to, but actually, you know, if they're stable, they're stable. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and, and often managing these patients alone makes you really think hard about your order of priority. You don't have the luxury of a Formula One style trauma team doing everything at once. What's more important, the blood gas or the x-ray? An EFAS or starting the IV line, you know, especially in that penetrating, you know, trauma patient, uh, um, tension pneumal, it would be probably, you know, better to get that um, EFAS um, probe on the chest and put in the chest drain than your priority of getting in the IV line. So prioritizing, you know, what's important in that moment, what could be life-threatening. I find aggressively looking for the pneumothoraxes and tamponade with ultrasound early on helps you deliver the right intervention as soon as possible. Absolutely. Um, and let's talk a little bit about differentiating the types of shock, which was the real challenge in this case. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that can be really challenging in a visit EC, right? I mean, you've seen it here um, where there's multiple things happening at the same time. There's EMS calling your attention. There's, you know, the patient on the floor that you need to get up. There's an agitated patient there. And now you have a polytrauma patient in front of you that you have to, I mean, a penetrating trauma patient in front of you that you have to differentiate the shock. It's not always clear and straightforward. Sometimes you might have a mix of both, but you know, as a rule of thumb for, for me, it's like a hypotensive trauma patient should be assumed to be bleeding until proven otherwise. Clinical exam, vitals, the heart rate, temperature, feel the hand, look at that patient thoroughly, see you know how sick they look. Note anything that seems out of place, especially like the case we had now. This is where your pokers also come in very handily, exclude, you know, excluding your tamponade, attention pneumo, or looking for free fluid in the abdomen. Absolutely. Um, clinic, exa clinic exam is really vital. And that's, you know, that's where we got the diagnosis from. In this case, it wasn't a pan CT scan. You correctly identified the patient had neurogenic shock um, based on clinical exam and the presentation. So let's dive into neurogenic shock a little bit. So, so neurogenic shock, um, the way we think about it is it's potentially a devastating consequence of a spinal cord injury. Um, in this case, it's penetrating spinal cord injury. Um, it manifests as hypotension, bradydysrhythmia, 
temperature dysregulation due to peripheral vasodilation following an injury to the spinal cord. So this occurs due to the sudden loss of sympathetic tone with preserved parasympathetic function, leading to an autonomic um, instability. So neurogenic shock mostly, mostly is considered um, is associated with cervical and high thoracic spine injury, which in our patient case, we figure out when we got the scan that he had a T2 um, transection. Yeah, and it's usually above T6 is when we start to think about neurogenic shock. And it's important uh, not to confuse neurogenic shock with spinal shock. Uh, spinal shock is a condition of transient physiologic rather than anatomic reflex depression of the spinal cord function below the level of the injury, which is often uh, reversible. So, Hasu, what first alerted you to the possibility that this was neurogenic shock? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think it was something didn't make sense. Um, you know, a patient with a bradycardia, warm peripheries, but in a bleeding patient, you would expect a tachycardia, especially a young bleeding patient, and call, you know, clammy skin if there was a hemorrhagic shock. But this patient had a bradycardia with warm hands. So that was the first thing that popped up that made me think, okay, there could be something more. And of course, the mechanism of injury as well, you know, realizing that he has a transthoracic um, gunshot wound. Definitely. And what other common cause of bradycardia do we have to actively look for and really aggressively treat in the trauma patient? Hypoxia, hypoxia would be, you know, one of my top considerations. To have neurogenic shock, you need a spinal cord injury. Um, I saw you did a really excellent targeted neurological exam early on in the patient's journey. Uh, can you talk us through what you were looking for? So I was basically looking for signs of, of spinal cord injury, spinal shock. Um, example, you know, loss of sensation, loss of power, which this patient had, he couldn't lift his leg. Then we went ahead and, you know, examined his reflexes, he had absent reflexes, um, and also looking for uh, testing um, bubble cavernosus reflex as well. Well, big words, Hasu. <laughs> that sounds like something you read in a neurology textbook from the 1980s. Right. What is uh, an, the absent bubble cavernosus reflex? Right. How do you so, test for it? So, uh, I try to make things as simple as possible, right? So this is where, you know, as you do a digital rectal exam, if the patient has a catheter in, it makes it even easier for you. Pull on the catheter or pull on the penis um, and assess, you know, and see if there's um, reflex in a contraction. And a only messing clinical exam is, is super important, especially before you do an RSI, because you're going to paralyze someone and sedate them and, and lose that ability to do a neurological exam. Um, so now that we've identified a suspected spinal cord injury and neurogenic shock, uh, what is different about managing the patient in our, to our kind of typical bleeding trauma patient? Absolutely. I mean, there, there are um, um, specific differences in the management of a neurogenic shock patient or specific considerations of um, a patient with neurogenic shock and spinal injury. So similar to our intracranial injuries, we don't do anything about the damage that's already occurred, right? From the primary insult, there's already a damage that you can't really do much about. But our job here is to try and limit secondary injury. So the mainstay then it becomes, you know, this aggressive treatment of the hypotension. Um, our target maps, again, slightly different in this case with, with a neurogenic shock. We want to have a map of at least 85 to 90 uh, millimeters of mercury that's what's recommended in most arm literature, um, which is higher than the standard permissive hypotension in hemorrhagic shock. So to start with, we can give some volume to ensure euvolemia. This can be either isotonic fluids or blood, depending on you know the patient, um, if he's having concurrent bleeding or not. Now, in early phase of trauma research, it's not going to be you know possible to determine or be sure you know like what it is. So, giving blood is probably going to be favored initially. Yeah, and the mainstay of BP control is with inopressors. So, ideally, something with both an alpha one and a beta one adrenergic activity, like noradrenaline or adrenaline. Um, this both counters vasodilation and provides positive chronotropy. If the heart rate is very low, then atropine can be added also. Um, and steroids are no longer recommended. Yeah, I mean, I mean because neurogenic shock causes vasodilatation, um, patients can get, you know, hypothermic, like in the case of our patient. So early warming, getting those bad alcohol on, um, on, on that patient and rigorous temperature control is also needed. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, um, the patient has a spinal cord injury. So throughout the patient's journey, care must be taken to maintain inline immobilization, um, especially during high risk procedures like log rolling and RSIs. So, Hesu, just to round things off, I want to talk a little bit about blood transfusions in a South African context, um, particularly the use of autotransfusion, which uh, you did for our patient. A lot of our considerations come, you know, towards resource availability as well. So, it's not just, you know, clinical guidelines, but also what's, what resources do you have available. Um, a lot of our district EC don't always have blood bank on site. So, we have a fixed amount of blood, you know, that's available to us for emergency transfusion. Um, so, we need to consider um, blood for other patients as well, because if it's a weekend, you know, it's going to be a busy trauma 
one weekend, then you need to try and ration out. So we, we try to do rational use of blood products in our ECs. Um, not sure about the Ireland setting per se, but autotransfusion is a common and recommended practice here for us. Um, autotransfusion of patients shed blood, obviously guarantees compatibility and remove the risk of allergenic transfusion related diseases. Um, so this is recommended in the fifth edition of the clinical guidelines for the use of blood products in South Africa, um, especially with stab and gunshot wounds um, and massive hemothoraxes. Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool to see it being used. Um, and it's not the kind of expensive cell saver stuff they use up in theater. It's literally just uh, taking a compatible chest drain, which many are um, taking the patient's blood, changing the drain, turning the one with the blood in it upside down and connecting a blood giving set, your normal blood giving set um, with a filter in it and giving the patients warm clotting factor rich whole blood straight back to them and avoiding the, the risks and the uh, resources of a transfusion. Um, so I'm definitely going to look at the chest drain kit we have when I go back and, and work in Ireland and see if it's got the right attachment and is compatible with uh, auto transfusion and have that in my armory if I have a, a trauma patient with significant bleeding, bearing in mind some of the contraindications mainly if there's kind of concern over diaphragmatic um, injury or rupture and contamination of that blood with bowel contents or with um, anything else absolutely um, that was brilliant thank you so much Hesu for coming on the show ah man thank you man it's always lovely you know catching up chatting about very interesting exciting emergency medicine things yeah you Such did a, a pleasure front room thoracotomy the other day which i'm about to hear about <laughs> so i'm looking forward to that ah man that's, that was hectic that was really really hectic yeah So after that, quite a tough case, and we've got our adult in the room, which is Dr. Martin Deman. He's a South African emergency medicine consultant who's had a really interesting career, starting off life as a general practitioner and working in China for 12 years before coming back to South Africa, training in emergency medicine, and now he has a special interest in disaster medicine. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Martin. Thank you, Callum. It's wonderful to have you here also. Great. So any thoughts about that case? I really had to look carefully and look far to find some small things that I wanted to say. So I, I really want to say well done on the case. Well done on touching on the important things. So I was thinking about finger thoracostomy just as a principle. I know here with us, you'll probably agree with me, to find a complete intercostal drain system, it's not so quick. So I think it's important to remember that there is something like a finger thoracostomy. You, 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 you clean the area, you take a blade and you, you cut through and you blunt dissect until you, you have a big enough hole to, to relieve pressure. And I think that is what it's about. And I always say it's, it's so nice to, to then order people around. So you've got your finger there in the hole and you ask someone else to get you the intercostal drain. So they, they pick it up, they bring it to you, and then, then you insert it. The alternative is actually to wait very long before you actually go on to do the intercostal drain. Yeah, then the second thing I thought was something I felt you didn't say enough about maybe is, is what I call crossing the midline badness. So if, if you have a gunshot crossing the midline or even a stab wound crossing the midline sometimes, then it's quite bad because it's just so unpredictable what anatomical structures are that was hit by the bullet, for example. So a through and through gunshot wound is so much easier sometimes because at least you know a little bit of an idea of the of the tract. But if you only have an entrance, then then you must actively look for an exit and you look for the bullet. If you can't find the bullet, then then you must look again. And I think something also to mention is just the importance of a log row of patients. It helps so much and have been, we've been caught out so many times with, with not log rolling the patient. I think Callum, the, the other patient we had the other day was, was quite, quite interesting because we had the stab supraclavicular on the left and we didn't log roll the patient for a, quite a long time. So what if, what if there were stabs on the, on the back of the patient that we didn't see. Certainly there's other ways and I, I really appreciate how you used the ultrasound to augment what you did. But if we if we miss something, then then that's quite quite bad for, for a polytrauma patient. The third thing I think is something that I've learned only 
recently or a few years ago, injury caused by a knife in the spine. Our teaching is actually saying that there's no further need for C-spine protection. And I had to read up a little bit and just make sure of my, my facts. The implication is that that the damage was done. So we, we do not really have to do further C-spine protection for a knife stab or, or a sharp object. The problem in the question is a bit more complicated when, when we come to gunshot wounds through the spine. And I think your case was definitely T2, a gunshot wound. So it's not so clear because the literature I, I read says that sometimes, and it's it's not so common, there's still the fragments that can cause quite an unstable situation, so you must continue to do spine control and to protect the spine. The fourth thing I'm thinking about is, I, I thought your, your differential for bradycardia in this case was just a bit short. So I is saying that, that hypoxia is important. For us in our practice, I think we see, and probably in other practices also, beta blockers. Sure, that's a big problem for us. So beta blockers causing causing bradycardia that you now have to take into consideration with this severely shocked patient. That's important. And then also decompensated shock is also quite high on my list. I think it's important to, to think about those two. But I think the case also illustrated quite well that, that the bradycardia just doesn't fit with a box standard hypotensive shock. So what to do with that? You must put the things together. Another thing I, I thought worth mentioning is that the, the dose, we, we almost only use adrenaline. Like, you know, we don't have noradrenaline here. So the alpha-1 and beta-1 effect that you spoke of, it's just important to have the dose correct. So 0.1 to 0.3 micrograms per kilogram per minute will give you beta effect. So you must go above 0.3 micrograms per kilogram per minute to up to 1 microgram. So that's just important to have the alpha and the beta effective if that's what you're choosing. And I think in a neurogenic shock patient, that, that's preferable that, that you go for a bit higher dose. The last thing I want to mention, and that's that's maybe you'll you'll say something more about it later, but, but you also already said the autotransfusion. There's some good literature that we have also in South Africa with a specific underwater drain system that we use. It's a dry system and we, we use it and it's quite safe. And we use a normal filter, and I think it's it's amazing because we, we we get to give the blood back to the patient, and and it's saving a lot of blood. And just maybe to mention is that the patient still needs some clotting factors to be added. Thank you so much, man. That's fantastic. Cheers. So for our bonus section today, I'm very happy to be sat here with Dr. Katia Evans, who's a consultant in emergency medicine um, at Mitchell's Plain Hospital in Cape Town and has a special interest in palliative care medicine. Uh, she's done a postgraduate diploma in palliative care at the University of Cape Town um, and she pursues it as a recess incest and as a special interest on the shop floor. So welcome to the podcast, Katia. Thanks, Callum. Thanks for having me. It's quite an interesting niche or not so much of a niche, but an interesting special interest palliative care. And I was wondering what got you into it in, to start with. My interest in sort of the palliative care, palliative medicine, emergency care overlap started when I was in EMS. So before I was a doctor, I worked in EMS uh, in Durban. Working in EMS, you get called to a lot of people's homes uh, in times of crisis. And quite frequently there, you have patients that are clear-cut palliative care patients either at end of life or with some kind of a crisis. EMS gets called because the family is afraid, because there is uh, some unanswered questions and learning to sort of do things different to the, the sort of ABC approach uh, was important. And I sort of started to see how um, our protocols and our guidelines and the way we do things doesn't really work for that group of patients. But often the only way, especially in a resource-limited um, environment, for those families to access help or care in two in the morning is realistically with an ambulance or to an emergency centre. And there's very limited access to two-in-the-morning palliative-type services. I think that's where it began, is going to those homes um, with families or patients in crisis. That's really interesting because I remember in the induction pack when I started working Mitchell's Plain, there was a whole section on palliative care and the way you phrased it was, um, I found, really impactful. You said, you know, when someone who is 
Um, clearly, at the end of their life, comes into the emergency departments. You will have to consider that our time might be better spent uh, doing a different type of approach and focusing on things like bringing family in and making the patients uh, comfortable and dignified rather than our typical ABCDE resuscitation lines, x-rays. Um, so it's still active management, but it's a different kind of active management. Um, and that takes a little while to get used to, I guess, because we're drilled into the same structure for everyone who comes into the ED. We often spend so much time doing those other things like getting the blood culture and putting in the IV and doing those things that we actually don't do any of the important stuff, which actually makes an impact for the patient and the family. They end up admitted and will sometimes go home and then they come back again one week later and the same thing repeats itself and we haven't had uh, time or capacity to have the more important conversations. So how would you define palliative care, in, especially in an emergency medicine context? So I think what's important is... A lot of people feel like you must do stuff, you must do things. Um, and so when you're looking at emergency medicine and palliative care, patient with palliative care needs should be seen just the way as a patient with critical care needs in that they it's not the absence of care. And I think that's where often healthcare workers can um, misunderstand or they'll say, oh no, that patient is just for palliative care. But what they're actually saying is that patients for nothing, um, and that's completely the opposite, actually, of what they what they need. Um, so they say, "Oh no, that patient's just for palliative care." Oh no, that's just a palliative care patient, um, and that's why we aren't taking the patient to resus and doing these things. But then uh, they're not understanding that there's a lot of that palliative care is an active process, and the same as we say to the families, or sometimes we don't say it in so many words, but that's how the families hear it. The family gets told the message: "There's nothing more we can do," which is not true at all and but can be the most hopeless thing ever said to someone if you hear the words there's nothing more we can do what the family visualizes is this person is going to suffer and fall flail and be confused and restless and in pain and whatever what we mean is we can't provide curative care anymore but what they hear is something very different so i think it's to try to get that messaging across and that palliative care is an active process that we can do a lot um, so I rephrase things differently. As I say, we, we're not going to be able to cure your mum's illness. We're not going to get rid of the cancer or the, whatever the problem is. But we can. there is a lot that we can do to make things more comfortable, more dignified um, and provide comfort. Yeah, it's such a fundamental rethink in how we phrase it. And I love you've got a pre-printed um, palliative care drug chart in the department. And uh, on the opening page in where the, usually the nursing instructions go, they say, Kind of pre-printed uh, thing with the focus on care and it's all active things um, i wonder if you could just read them out for us sure i've got it here um so on the front where we would traditionally put the sort of intravenous fluid prescription and the meal status or whatever at the top the heading is focus of care and we've divided into four sections which is the four arms of palliative care actually which is physical social psychological and spiritual so number one, we've put physical, ensure patient is kept comfortable and pain-free, treat pain by adjusting morphine infusion, treat restlessness with sublingual lorazepam, and do not perform painful or uncomfortable tests or interventions. And then it's number two, social, allow visitors as per palliative care visiting policy. So that's one of the things we worked on is changing our visiting hours policy for palliative care patients. And number three, psychological, ensure patient is supported emotionally. Number four, spiritual. If patient or family wishes, allow a religious representative to meet and um, to visit. That's put actually under our orders where you would traditionally put the intake output instructions, etc. And it's great because, as you say, it's all active things. So instead of saying to a family, there's nothing more we can do, you say, there's a whole lot we can do. How does this sound? And you read them all out and the family goes, well, that all sounds fantastic. Of course, I don't want painful and horrible procedures. And yes, I definitely want visiting hours. And that sounds wonderful. Thank you. Rather than... Yeah. Um, there's nothing we can do or it's, it's giving realistic expectations I guess and then inside the drug chart you've pre-printed suitable palliative care um, infusions for agitation and pain um, as subcut infusions for doctors who maybe aren't comfortable knowing the doses and the, the dosing range so that's really helpful um, because you can just sign it and empower the nurses to to titrate to the, the patient's response which is great we, the way we train our doctors um is that it's not just an automatic just sign that here everything has to be customized or you know 
uh, for the patient appropriately. Sometimes none of those options are appropriate, in which case they get scratched through. This is not a default, have to follow this pathway kind of process at all. This is just guidance to allow the, the doctors some guidance on medication prescribing and so forth, but it is by no means some sort of rigid protocol that gets followed to the T. And do your doctors get any specific training on palliative care in your unit? It's not a standard thing in emergency medicine across um, Cape Town, but it's something that in our unit we've made compulsory. And we've got a course that's done, it's called the Introduction to Palliative Care course, and that's for medical officers in our department that is compulsory training. And it is done over a six-week period of time with a few hours a week of online contact sessions and some reading and so forth. That's not like sort of mandatory governmental training. That is an internal thing in our department, just like people do the ACLS and PULS and those things. Introduction to palliative care is one of those sort of uh, courses that we recommend. And the hospital pays for that training course for the staff members. We've managed to motivate for that. So it's something that is very helpful for young doctors in emergency medicine just to gain insight in those different ways of doing things. We also do a lot of other palliative care things. It's not necessarily just the dying, but um, uh, there is a lot of palliative care in emergency medicine, whether you realize it or not. Sometimes doing this kind of training helps you gain insight into the fact that some patients have different needs. Absolutely. And I think in South Africa, with the high burden of HIV and TB and the incredible pressure on ICU resources is definitely patients that are deemed not for escalation that um, are younger than I was used to or um, seemed well and that can be quite challenging so the scope of palliative care practice here I think is is quite wide um, it must have been particularly troubling during COVID how was your experience of, of that? Um, yeah so I think um Although I'd been involved in, in palliative care and had trained formally in it uh, before COVID, it's probably serendipitous because those skills came into use and it's the group of us that had advanced palliative care experience that were hospital clinicians because obviously a large amount of palliative care clinicians are not in hospital practice. They're in hospice, home type or GP type environments. Those that us that have been involved in hospital practice sort of got together and we helped develop guidelines for the province and we helped set up dedicated palliative care wards for patients with COVID that were not suitable for escalation to high care. We set up, even on our own premises, we set up an entire um, ward just for that purpose. Uh, we gave guidance towards it, but there were full-time clinicians there that ran the show. We had to do some very tough triaging. I mean, at the best of times without COVID, our ICU beds are extremely uh, precious. And so during COVID, we had to implement a triage tool, which was actually very helpful for the clinicians. So the Critical Care Society of South Africa, along with various role players and emergency medicine came up with this critical care screening tool and which helped us to classify or prioritize patients for ICU. And then based on the current hospital status, you know, which group of, they color coded patients into color codes and which group was currently being accepted into ICU. A lot of people were very worried about developing such a tool and whether, what that would do to healthcare workers. It actually made things a lot better and I think probably decreased the anxiety and distress on the healthcare workers. Because if you knew from the outset that your patient would be excluded from ICU, it framed your entire care process and pathway as opposed to starting initial interventions in the emergency center and then having to withdraw them it is a very different thing you were able to know that your patient would not be eligible for, for ICU despite being in their 30s but they've got a BMI above 35 they're diabetic poorly controlled HbA1c's some of those things would exclude you from ICU completely but if you knew that from the outset you were able to initiate different types of interventions a different way of dealing with your patient communicating with them communicating with their family we used a lot of video calling type things with families and it was it was challenging we had a massive number of patients that died at our hospital um, exceeding 2,000 deaths um, at, at our hospital I think in one wave alone uh, the repercussions that for staff as well as um, I mean even just the mortuary porters and and what they had to deal with and turnover to move patients out of the mortuary and that kind of thing was intense those those who've worked at the hospital they know 
um, in that time. And um, one of the saving graces for our long-term doctors that had worked at that time and still work in our department, the area that we set up for our COVID emergency center is currently actually our pediatric emergency center. What has helped a lot of people to cope with the aftermath psychologically is that, you know, once things all settled down, we converted that back into our pediatric emergency center. So now that room, which was so much death and darkness and horrendousness is now okay, quite a happy place because pediatric emergency centers often are quite sort of cheerful, happy, jokey, fun places. So, you know, I'm sure everyone's got their flashbacks of the rooms in those days. And we had to garden irrigation hosing to split our oxygen uh, so that each port could give us eight patients of oxygen and to remove all beds so that because you could fit more patients in the sitting position than the lying down position. So it's now a happy place. And I think that has been a saving grace um, through strange serendipity one of the challenges i find as a as a training doctor is identifying patients that need palliative care when they first come in the door you often don't have all the information um, you might um, suspect that they're in the process of dying based on their age and their comorbidities and the disease process that you think is going on like a pneumonia or an intracranial bleed or something but you might not have spoken to all the family yet so you're just gathering records I wonder what your approach is to identifying the patient that needs palliative care rather than active resuscitation. We know that as doctors, we are very bad at recognising normal dying. This is this is 100% true. We are terrible at it, at recognising normal dying. I'll give an example that um, happened to me probably a year or so ago as I walked outside the ambulance entrance to make a phone call. And there was a family member who was also on the phone at the time. And I knew the patient was inside. And she was on the phone and she said she was talking to her loved one, uh, you know, sort of pacing up and down outside our recess room sort of entrance. And she said, you know, we thought that uh, whatever his name was, was, was dying. And so all of us, the whole family rushed to hospital when the ambulance came and fetched him from home. And because we really, we thought he was dying. It turns out uh, that it's actually just his blood pressure super, super low. So they've put him on medicine to bring his blood pressure up. And it's also his oxygen levels are really low. So they've put him on a machine just to help like bring the oxygen levels up. They now uh, say that he's stable and that. So sure, we actually feel a bit bad now. We, we all rushed here because we thought he was dying, but it turns out it's just his blood pressure and his oxygen. And I thought to myself, how did that communication go wrong? Because I know this patient <laughs> is most likely going to die. But, and that's what the family recognized. So the family recognized dying. And then whatever, however we've communicated, our part has told them that uh, they actually were wrong. <laughs> and it's, they're not wrong, they're right. So sometimes family are quite good at it. And I can actually sometimes get this from family. If you, have, if you start to learn um, communication uh, uh, tips is, is when you get your history from the family is... You know, how have things been the last uh, few months, the last few weeks? Um, uh, what do you think is going on? Why do you think he's getting like this? Um, and you'll be surprised how many families, when you ask, why do you think this? Why do you think that is? And you keep on asking those questions. How many of them actually say things like, oh, doctor, I think, I think it's probably the end. You know, and you'll be surprised how many families are able to say that because they're able to see how things have changed with time. And... Um, when families say things like that, again, they're probably right, and we should probably be getting on the same page as them. Uh, and they are, when they say it out loud, that's often the first time they've said it out loud. And, and they're like, yeah, actually, I think that this is what's going on. I think I think he might be the end now. Or, um, or they'll ask you, doctor, do you think now it's maybe near the end? But it, it, often you can get that from the history if you actually unpack it with people. Obviously, that doesn't apply to an acute sudden illness in someone that was previously well. But I think... Um, we see palliative care kind of patients or patients that are eligible for palliative care in three main groups in our department. The one is the known palliative care patient that comes in crisis-driven. There's a crisis for some sort, whether it's spiritual, existential, uh, pain, symptom control, uh, social crisis because of care or loss of care uh, by family or, or um, circumstances changing at home. Um, or the loss of like supportive devices, you know, a peg has come out or where this has happened, um, medications run out and they haven't got the safety net to, to get more. Um, that's the one group, so it's sort of known palliative care and those are crisis driven. And we just need to figure out what the crisis is and how help them come up with a plan for the future crisis that will arise. Um, the other group of patients is patients that no one yet has realized 
is does have palliative care needs and therefore they're coming to the department the whole time because no one has linked them with appropriate services and identified that this actually this patient needs palliative care interventions um, and uh, and or communicated to the patient as such. Sometimes the family are bringing them every two days because no one's adequately communicated that this is the expected trajectory one can expect. And lots of families, they send you thank you cards and little chocolates and little sweet to say thank you because you're the first doctor that's ever told them that, you know what, this is her body slowly shutting down and this is what you can expect in the coming weeks, months, yeah. Um, and... Uh, they're very appreciative of that. They're like, yeah, we keep on bringing him back the whole time because he keeps on getting worse and worse and no one's doing anything. And it's because no one's probably communicated that this is an expected trajectory. Um, we just get frustrated and label them frequent flyer or something like that. And then the third group of patients are acute, sudden, that don't really fall into palliative care. It's an end of life uh, scenario for whatever reason, a massive intracranial bleed, uh, stroke, uh, uh, unsurvivable, you know, cardiac infarct or um, unsurvivable extreme multi-organ failure sepsis type picture or as you've experienced this week, uh, burns, uh, massive burn wounds, 100% burns. Um, so those are my sort of three categories of patients that come into the department. What language do you use when you're telling a patient's family or a patient that they're dying? Do you, uh, do you use the word dying? Do you allude to it or are you kind of direct with your language? It depends if I'm dealing with patient or family. Um, in the emergency centre, we, we, we end up less with patient and more with family, majority of the time, like because of the patient's ability to comprehend information. And that's, that's due to the pure nature of um, what type of problems bring patients to the emergency centre. Um, using, using the word dying, die, will die is key. Um, and it makes a huge impact. Um, and family are often very grateful because that's what they were quietly thinking was going on, but they're uncomfortable to say it out loud or they don't want to sort of say, if they say it out loud, it must be true. You know, there's that kind of thing. Um, the other big common phrase I use a lot with families, even if I'm still on a curative journey, but I'm worried that we're going to head in a different direction, is that if you as a doctor think that there is a chance this patient might die you should have the respect to the family to tell them that because how many times uh doctors are super worried about a patient they're really really sick they're struggling they're this and they don't tell the family there's a chance they can die and i say why didn't you speak why didn't you tell the family that in your conversation and the doctors will say well, no, we're still, we're still busy with this, this. We're still giving the inotropes. We're not, like, stopping the inotropes. Then I'll tell the family. And I'm like, hmm, if you're so sick that you need to be intubated and get inotropes in the emergency department, that is seriously ill. Let's be realistic. There is a very good chance. We hope not. We really, we're working hard to try and not let that happen. But you should say that to the family. So the way I say it is I say things like, I'm really worried about your brother. Because what you want is the things that you say to the family, they need to be able to repeat it to their extended family. So when you say things like, oh, we're going to give some medicine for the blood pressure to bring it up, that's inotropes, right? We know that, but they don't understand that. That's just like a blood pressure medicine for them. That doesn't mean anything. So, But when they say on the phone, in the, when they're phoning the family afterwards, they say things like, the doctor was really worried. The doctor says he's really, really sick. The doctor's worried that he's so sick that there is a chance he can die. I mean, it's true, right? It, it, he's so sick he can die. That's the whole reason we're giving the minotropes and we're tubing them and we're doing stuff. He's so sick he can die. And when you, so I really, I use the words, I am really worried, which allows the family to repeat to, on the phone to their loved ones, the doctor's really worried, as opposed to the doctor says he's stable, which means nothing to anyone. Anyone that's had a phone call about a relative, someone phoned me, a nurse from an ICU once phoned me to say, Gran's just arrived at hospital, she's been admitted to ICU, but don't worry, she's stable. As a doctor, <laughs> when you get a message that your Gran's in ICU, and, but don't worry, she's stable, you know that that could mean anything under the sun, like that literally is not a helpful piece of information, and that's for you as a doctor. Um, so I think it's just, those are the kind of languages. I do use the word um, really worried he might die, really worried that there's a chance. And you know what? If that patient does survive, 
well, guess what? <laughs> you, you're the best doctor ever. The family will be incredibly grateful. So no one will be angry with you for saying that because because people say, well, what happens if he survives? And you said that he might die. I said, yeah, I, said, I didn't say he was dying. I said, There's a, he's so sick, he might die. And the family are all very grateful. And uh, you'll even they might even bring their loved one back to... to you know, back with the balloon or the flower or the whatever to say thank you. So I think that's important is that if you wouldn't be surprised, if you went off shift and you went home and the next day you came to work and someone told you, oh, do you remember Mrs. Smith? She actually died um, this morning. If that doesn't shock you to your core, you should probably be telling the family. So that's my sort of way of thinking about it. Do you take the family's will and desires about their loved one's care into consideration when and deciding whether to apply palliative care or not, or is it your clinical decision? Obviously, it's nice to have the family on board, but is it independent of their wishes? You know, things are very different in different countries, how things work. I mean, in the States, it's sort of the family make the decision about everything until the patient's 122 years old. You know, it's... it's. Um, I think what's very important is how you communicate that. Because if you... Like, shared decision-making... Um, there's certain things that we can and can't do in state sector. You know, if ICU is not going to accept a patient, they're not going to accept the patient. Can, the family can wish it all they want. It's 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 not an, actually an option. But I think it's very important when you think about shared decision making in emergency medicine. I mean, shared decision making in emergency medicine is a really big thing, um, and it's a real skill and an art into things. You should never offer something that is ridiculous. I'll use an example that's not palliative care, but it's an emergency medicine thing. Is you've got a child where you are on the fence. Should I do a lumbar puncture? Should I not do a lumbar puncture? This is like borderline. Is this a meningitis or can this kid just go home? Like, is this a viral upper respiratory tract infection? Or is this actually a meningitis that's bacterial? And if you as a clinician are on the fence, you know, you really think it's fine either way. Either they could go home and watch the kid at home. And if they're getting worse, okay, fine, come back. Or you could do the lumbar puncture. And, and both of those options are reasonable options. Um, then the principles of applied of shared decision-making are appropriate. And then you involve the family in that decision-making, weighing up pros and cons. But if you've got a child with a profoundly stiff neck with every clinical sign of a severe bacterial meningitis, that's, that's not a shared decision-making scenario. Like you don't involve, you don't give the parents the option to take the kid home and see what happens. You know, that's it's not it's ridiculous. So the same should go for uh, doing, you know, resuscitative interventions. You shouldn't offer something that is completely ridiculous that would be out of line with everything. Ninety-eight-year-old patient with advanced metastatic cancer. You don't say to the family. Because by offering things to people, it implies that you as a doctor think that this is a reasonable option. And that's important, is that um, you're almost giving your recommendation. By offering something to a family, it's almost like you as a clinician giving a recommendation. You ask the family, would you like us to resuscitate her? They actually didn't know that was an option until you've offered it. And they were like, oh, you can resuscitate her? Like, we sort of didn't know that's an option. Yes, completely. Yes, we want our gran back. What they might mean is they want gran that was, you know, from two years ago back. That's what they want. But they don't. that's not how you communicate. So it's very important not to offer a shopping list of things. So people sort of tend to go down this list. Do you want CPR? Uh, oh, oh, that's an option. You could just do CPR and she'll just come back just like that. Uh, do you want this? Do you want this? Do you want... So don't... Rather than going down a shopping list of what things you do and don't want, um, you should rather be trying to elicit what's important to the people and family. And so going through, okay, what's important to what what's important to her? So I might say things like, you know, your mom, I've never met your mom before. I'm an emergency medicine doctor. I'm not a GP. I, I don't see these patients, you know, they're long term. So I'll say, I never met your mom while she was still... Um, uh, you know, the way that she was two years ago. I never met her, so I don't know what kind of person your mom was. What do you think your mom would say about the current thing, like her current health status and her current, how things have been going at home? If mom was sitting with us now, what would she think? So I, I start to go through with them what what um, mom would say in, in the situation rather than a shopping list. Okay, what do you think mom would think about her health? What do you think mom would think about what's going on? That kind of thing. Um, and I try to elicit, you know, if mom was with us now and could talk nicely, um, what do you think would be important to her right now? 
what do you think would be her priorities or what do you think would be this? And I try and elicit the goals of what's important to them. And then once we've established those goals of what's important to them, then I go the next step and I say, okay, it sounds to me like it's very important to mom that her family's around her because her family was a very big, important part in her life. And okay, it sounds to me like mom would be very unhappy with the kind of pain that she's in now. So treating her pain would be one of the most important things. Or, And that sounds like as a family, you're very distressed by the pain or the thing that she's in. So I go that way around rather than starting with, do you want this ridiculous thing that... Then it's really awkward because what happens when the family say yes? And you're like, oh, we're still probably not going to do CPR on this 98-year-old lady with advanced metastatic cancer. Now you're in this awkward, weird position. How do you backtrack from there? So I start with goals and I work towards... Then I create a list of things that we are going to do to meet those goals and we don't necessarily bring up the CPR and the resuscitation because it is inferred by the goals. I think that's an absolutely brilliant approach and I've definitely heard terrible approaches where the opening thing is if if your grandma's heart should stop would you like us to restart it and they go yes and then you tick for max resuscitation and <laughs> on a 90 year old and it, it, it's ridiculous and it's and um, we're very used to ICU coming down and and clinically assessing a patient and saying this patient is not for ICU um, and a similar approach should be applied um, one step before ICU which is not for intubation not for CPR but rather than opening with that and losing the trust of the family and beginning with a negative and mm. starting with death and how we can't do anything or we won't do anything or they're not suitable to start with their life and their wishes and as you say either not ever cover that because you it's, it's so implied by the conversation or if you do feel that you need to expressly state that you won't be doing cpr you can frame it in a way as you've just said pain is a huge thing to her and cpr causes pain or mm. her um, being comfortable with her family is the most important thing and icu is not a good place and family aren't allowed in so mm. you're bringing it back to what the patient of uh, the family have already said that they want and you're helping them a lot of people think i oh, know we don't have time for all of this in the emergency center that's like the number one thing I get. But when you get practice to these kind of conversations, to be honest, this is an under 15 minutes, sometimes even under 10 minute conversation. If you start with, I've never met your mom before. I don't know what kind of person she was. Tell me about her. Tell me about this. What would she say about this? This is actually really quick conversations, but people think that this is some sort of three hour seminar with the family or whatever. It's actually often not. It's actually often super quick. And uh, often it's the family that does most of the speaking and not you, and they come to their own realizations. And sometimes there's family that say, yo, maybe we actually shouldn't have brought it in today. Now that we think about it like this, and you've said nothing, you've just helped them to you know, think out loud and to reaffirm and other things is just congratulations. It's really tough. It's really tough looking after someone that's dying and um, just congratulating them for doing a good job and saying, we see you, we know this is incredibly hard like you are doing amazing well done and how can we support you and sometimes they've come to hospital because there's a dispute between family you know um we talk about you know the sister came from johannesburg um which is another city in cape town um and everything's been going fine at home everyone has got everything but then the sister comes from johannesburg hasn't seen mom for two years and suddenly we're at the emergency department and it's because uh, they, everything was going fine and then they suddenly feel like a bad daughter maybe I should have done this maybe I should have and sometimes all that they, they all that they came to the emergency department for is for affirmation that you're doing really well well done keep up the good work how can we help support you more what do you need from us do you have any sweet questions you want us to answer um, but because they come up with abnormal vitals and a high temp and this then suddenly they're down this whole pathway that was not, not actually why they came but they sometimes just come because they've got questions about the noisy chest or uh, a, a wound or uh, is this okay that we're giving this medicine that we actually got from my cousin you know, my cousin's on these sleeping tablets and we'll be giving it to mom and it actually really helps her and sometimes you're like that's okay we'll write you a script for the same stuff you know <laughs> and it's simple things way I often try figure out the true presenting symptom is I ask the families like what's what's keeping you up at night what's really worrying you about him not What's, what's the stuff that's making you not sleep at night time? And that's what I ask. And sometimes you'll get the true question. Just as we wrap up, for any doctors who are kind of not 
comfortable or not as comfortable as they would like to be providing palliative care in the emergency department. Do you have any advice for them on how they can improve and um, any resources that's uh, free to look at and, and to develop your palliative care skills? I think um, there's a really great app that's free. It's called Vital Talk Tips. Uh, I'm sure you can like put some sort of a link or something to it, but it's a free app and it is a game changer. Like I've been doing this for years and I still look at this app all the time for inspiration. It's It's got like scripts and you, you'll, with anything in emergency medicine, you start to develop scripts for certain things. You, you'll have some sort of automatic script that runs in your head when you talk to a patient with a minor head injury that's going home. You know, you develop these little things with the years that you say over and over and over again. You start to develop scripts for certain scenarios. And um, I think these kind of conversations are things that can... You can get sort of cheat guides to help you learn to speak in certain ways. Um, and Vital Tips got a lot of that. It's not just palliative care app, by the way. It's an app for communication in, in with patients in general. Um, and it's super helpful because there's like a little question and then there's an answer. And then um, if you click, there's just like little, they're almost like um, flashcards. And then you press the card and it flips over and it helps you, it explains to you why you should say it that way and not this other way. And then if you want to go read more, there's like a link you can click on, or you can just be like me and just, I'm too lazy and I just flick through the cards. But there's like really nice things for like goals of care discussion or breaking bad news or um, a dispute with a colleague or a dispute with senior or a dispute with a junior. There's all sorts of like little things. And I think that app is a really cool one. Um, there's uh, a couple of cool podcasts um, that's like that I'll, I'll share with you and you can share with the with the group um, that aren't aimed at specifically emergency medicine providers but there's some gold like gold uh, talks there if you like look through the topics that do apply um, um, when it comes to like the symptom control stuff but I think that emergency medicine our priority stuff is communication and then the other tool that we use for those that are interested that'll might come to South Africa at some point is there's a tool um, that's designed through consensus process of in South Africa who meets criteria for palliative care interventions and that's called the SPICT tool and I'll share that link with you as well that helps to determine which patients um, are eligible for palliative care interventions. Brilliant thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure thank you for having me.